Good morning. What, um, what a beautiful story. Um, what an encouragement um, this morning of the goodness of God. Um, yeah, as Ben said, I'm Rosie and I'm continuing our Body Matters series this morning. And to start with, I want to introduce us this morning to a church in Corinth. The Corinthian church was started by a man named Paul. And he just loved these guys. He loved these Christians who were learning how to follow Jesus in a really wild city. There's one, um, I think, um, historian author was um, from around the time, was talking about whenever he goes to a play and he sees a Greek play, any of the Corinthian actors, they're always drunk, which I would say sums up a bit of the Corinthian lifestyle. Paul plants his church, he nurtures this church, he sees them um, become a community loving Jesus, and then um, he leaves after about a year and a half um, to go and start other churches. And then while he's in a place called Ephesus, he starts getting some reports that things have gone a bit awry down in old Corinth. (laughs) The people are getting up to all sorts of things, ranging from immature to downright destructive. So Paul's like, get me a quill. We've got some work (laughs) to do here. And he writes them quite a long letter, which... I think instead of 1 Corinthians, could have been titled Body Matters. (laughs) Because the Corinthians have become confused about all sorts of matters um, to do with the body. Food, sex, singleness, marriage, clothing, communion, sacrifice, public worship, you name it, they are confused. And they're confused because they have either forgotten or drifted away from the truth that to God, the body really matters. This morning, we're going to walk through the penultimate chapter of this letter, 1 Corinthians. And I think this chapter could be called Redeemed. And that's the topic that we've got to um, this Sunday. We've um, looked at our bodies being created by God, broken by sin, understood by the incarnation of Jesus. And now we come to the very best news, the redemption of our bodies. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in this chapter. So starting at the beginning then, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 3. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to turn there. So this is how Paul starts. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Here, Paul is quoting one of the earliest Christian statements in history. This is one of the founding statements of our faith. These words would have been said in churches and evangelists, they would have been familiar They would have been as familiar to this church as the opening words of the Declaration of Independence probably is to Americans. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And one of the first things I want us to notice about these words, this creed, this statement, this grand summary of the Christian faith, is that they are undeniably physical. Each one of these actions happened to or were done by Jesus in his human body. Died, buried, raised, appeared. For Paul here, the resurrection of Jesus isn't some mystical idea that requires a suspension of disbelief in order to take seriously. 
Quite the opposite, it's an event that had occurred in the recent past and was as real to him as the breakfast that he'd had that morning. This account of flesh and blood happened on a real hill in front of real people documented in real accounts. He was seen by others, hundreds of people, in fact, many of whom were alive at the time Paul was writing this, who could tell you what they'd seen with their own eyes. In the Gospels, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our Bibles, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances are unavoidably and undeniably human. When our imaginations might go to floating visions or the Alleluia chorus appearing before Jesus enters a room, what we actually have are accounts of a human man standing in a garden, walking with travelers on a road, eating fish with his disciples on a beach. He looked so human after his resurrection that Mary mistook him for a gardener. And those disciples walking to Emmaus mistook him for a nameless pilgrim. He does walk through walls. I'll give you that. He does walk through walls and he does seem to be able to disappear at will. But he does those things not as a ghost, but as a human man with a resurrection body. You might be familiar with the story um, of the Apostle Thomas, who sadly for Thomas has been immortalized with the name Doubting Thomas. I think it's pretty harsh, isn't it? Naming someone for their least impressive moment. It would be like calling me Rosie, once left her passport in an Airbnb and realized it one hour before the plane was leaving Bunker. (laughs) Thomas was called Doubting because when he had heard that Jesus had risen, he said, I won't believe this until I see it with my eyes. So Jesus appears to him and the other disciples in a locked room. He turns to Thomas and he says, here I am. Put out your hand, place it in my side, in that physical wound. Thomas believes because the wound that he touches is what brought the possibility for doubting people to become believing people. Here in his resurrection body, his perfect, incorruptible, glorious body, Jesus still carries the scars of the cross. And he'll have them when we see him because he has that same resurrection body now. Paul basically here just doesn't give the Corinthians any wriggle room at all to believe that what they do with their bodies doesn't matter. They can't focus on spiritual things and avoid the physical life as irrelevant because their whole faith is dependent on a doctrine of the body, the death and resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is doing. And so having reminded the Corinthians of this matter of first importance, the resurrection of Jesus, and having this truth in mind, he's going to ask the Corinthians a question. This is um, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then jumping forward to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made 
alive. Clearly, some of the Corinthians are confused about what's going to happen to their bodies when they die. And what Paul really wants to stress here is that their resurrection, the resurrection of the Corinthians, is not a confusing side theory of Christianity able to be pushed to one side. It's not a take it or leave it idea that we can't really hold on to because it's just a bit too mysterious. What he's saying is that you cannot have Christ's resurrection without ours, and you can't have ours without Christ's. They are two sides of the same coin. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says, then not even Christ has been raised. For Paul, saying that Christ has been resurrected and that we will be resurrected are inseparably linked. Why is that? Because Christ and his church are inseparably linked. The Bible says we are in Christ. We don't follow him from a distance or believe some things he said. We are inseparably joined to him. For Paul here, the logic is actually very simple. What has happened to Jesus will happen to his church. Where he goes, we go. Where the head goes, the body has to follow. Christ, the head, has been raised. The church, his body, has to follow. And where has Jesus gone? Through death and out the other side. So where will his church go? Through death and out the other side. On the cross, as Jesus drew his final breath, he dove headfirst into the gaping jaws of death and burst a hole out the other side. He didn't narrowly escape the clutches of death, like close one. He crushed it. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't a brief break in the norm. It broke the norm forever. It wasn't a blip in reality. It has changed the very fabric of reality itself. For the Christian, death has been rewritten. It is now a doorway. Each of us who are in him will surely follow him through that doorway. Because we know that Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead, we know that our bodily resurrection is coming. We will be resurrected from the grave. It's like thunder and lightning. Once you see that bolt cut through the sky, you know that thunder will inevitably follow. Or as soon as you see the sun on the horizon, you don't have to wonder if the day will follow. You know it's guaranteed. Each one of us this morning, every single one of us, have things in our lives, maybe things we've been through, things we're currently going through, things no one else knows about, that would whisper to us, oh, if God is really with you, how could this be happening? Or maybe you wonder, how, how am I doing in this Christian life? And am I doing, am I doing enough? Am I doing well enough? to earn my place among the saved. Maybe I've messed up too much to be allowed in, but there's no way really of knowing. Each of us who feel that we have a lot in common with doubting Thomas, Jesus knows that we need assurance. 
Just as with Thomas, he doesn't intend to leave us in our doubt. But today he would appear in the locked rooms of your heart and say, neither death nor life will be able to separate you from my love. For us to question for our resurrection to eternal life, to be in question, Jesus' own resurrection would have to be in question. He loves to come and meet us in our doubts. He doesn't just say to us, oh, you've got to believe and hold on yourself, but he comes and meets us and shows us who he is. And he is the resurrection and the life. We have seen the dawn rising over the horizon, and though it may still be dark, we know that the day is coming. So Paul has done everything he can here to convince the Corinthians that they will be resurrected, just like Jesus. He really could not have made it more clear. He repeats it over and over again, that they will be resurrected. And this is really important to Paul, because if their bodies will one day be raised, then their bodies have a future. And if they have a future, they are not insignificant now. And what they're doing with their bodies does really matter. Food, sex, worship, they're not spiritually irrelevant things, but are in fact spiritual, important things that speak of the nature of God and can be used to glorify him. And that's part of what he's trying to do here in this chapter. So then Paul preempts the next question, which may be um, our questions that we've all asked. Maybe even as I've been speaking, these questions have arisen in your mind. Maybe these questions are actually a source of confusion or fear for you. Here they are. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And these are important questions. Knowing what our eternities will be like determines so much about how we live now. And if we're not sure of the answers to these questions, we are much more likely to be afraid of death and cautious about longing for eternity because we won't really think about eternity much at all because we're not really sure what we're expecting. This is not how God has designed the Christian life to be lived. I really believe it doesn't work unless our hearts are set on that great day. So let's look at how Paul answers these questions. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, his, his response, I will have to explain, because <laughs> he begins by going, you foolish person, <laughs> which is not, I think, what he would say to us today. But um, it seems that the Corinthians are a bit like, okay, well, how are the dead going to be raised? In a kind of doubting way. Um, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And then jumping into verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Listen to this, so good. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And then verse 49. We come to the good news for our bodies that we've been waiting for, for this whole series. For the last few weeks as we've been thinking about the brokenness in our bodies. And actually, this isn't just what we've been waiting for, but this is the good news that all creation waits in eager longing for. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And when you heard today that we were looking at redemption of the, our bodies, you might have thought, okay, this is going to be you know, some good news now. Some good, some good news. Did you dare to hope it would be this good? <laughs> Haven't we been longing to hear good news as we've thought about all the different ways our bodies have broken, our fallenness, our faltering, our fragility, our finitude, the sleepless nights, the migraines, the anxiety, the PTSD, the sexual abuse, the acne, the allergies, the knee that hasn't behaved properly since that accident, the cancer scare, the cancer reality, the miscarriage, the infertility diagnosis. Deep pain needs a deep rescue. There is no better news for our physical selves than these verses. So let's look at what's going on in them. Firstly, in these verses, Paul paints a picture of what our existence with God for eternity will be like. And like we saw with the resurrection of Jesus, it is rooted in the physical. Because they tell us that our bodies are not just for now, but God's eternal plan involves our bodies. Richard B. Hayes says, our identity is bound up inextricably with our bodily existence. If we are to be saved, we must be saved as embodied persons. This is what was so hard for those confused Corinthians to get their heads around. And I think this is what we find so hard to get our heads around. We don't wait for redemption from our bodies. We wait for redemption for our bodies. We're not looking to escape the body to be with Jesus, but to have bodies that are made new to be with Jesus. As we looked at earlier, in his glorification, Jesus is as much a human man now as he was when he was walking the dust of the earth. If Jesus himself did not shed his humanity for something more glorious, how could we? And why would we? We will have physical bodies on a physical creation that will be a meeting of heaven and earth. And we will live lives, I believe, that look a little bit like this one. We will be in some ways like we are now. We will not, for example, all have the same accent or be the same race. In Revelation, John describes a multitude from different tribes and peoples and languages. There's nothing to suggest that we will stop being male or female on the new earth, and there's nothing to suggest that we won't in some way be recognizable as us. I'm sure there are all some ways we're like, oh, could I just have this bit tweaked? <laughs> but what Paul describes is something far more glorious. I believe that many of the things that we most enjoy in this life, we will enjoy after our resurrection. Food, travel, swimming, laughing with friends, eating cheese, 
<laughs> Having a nap, maybe. I don't know about the sleep one, but I really love a nap, so. <laughs> and I really, I do believe this is not just a nice idea to think about sometimes. It's not a daydream. What knowing this gives us is permission not to try and do it all and see it all now. Gives us permission not to have to make the most of this life by cramming in as many experiences and as much pleasure as possible. Paul uses this logic actually earlier in the chapter. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we should all just pack up right now. We should all literally leave church right now and go to a party somewhere, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, because it's all over. But if Christ is raised from the dead, and we will be too, we don't have to be friends with that ever insatiable fear of missing out. I saw a great example of this, actually. Last year, um, I overheard a conversation between um, my sister and, um, and a woman that was staying at our house. And um, my sister was having this conversation about sharks, which is something she loves to do. And um, <laughs> she was saying that it's her dream to swim with sharks. And look, I can't relate to that, but we're all different. That's fine. Some of you are shaking your head. I'm with you. But this is what she wants to do. She wants to swim with sharks. And so this, this girl was like, oh, well, you know, you've got to make that happen. That's your dream. You've got to live your dream. And she was like, um, yeah, well, I'd have to get a scuba diving license, and I'd probably have to go to Mexico, and I don't, you know, don't really have the money to do that. And she was like, if that's your dream, you should let nothing stand in your way. You should do it. We'll find a way to do it. And she was like, kind of shrugged. She was like, I'm going to swim with sharks in heaven. <laughs> and um, this woman, I think, was a bit dumbfounded. <laughs> like, Where'd you go from there? I don't really know. <laughs> but she really means it. And I thought, this kid has got it. She's free, right? She's not free because she's off in Mexico swimming with sharks. She's free because she knows where she's going. Imagine it being such a reality to us that we will enjoy God's goodness in creation for eternity, glorifying him by enjoying his goodness forever. How free would we live? But I think there are still some questions, right? I'm sure there are questions about, wait, what, okay, the, the Corinthians question here, like, wait, what's it actually going to be like? What will I look like? How old will I look? Can it be when I was 21? <laughs> to help us understand some of these things and answer some of these questions, or to think about how to think about these questions, Paul uses the analogy of a seed. See, for Paul, you don't bury Christians, you plant them. The image here is that our bodies will be raised like a plant is raised from a seed. It's not an entirely new body, but it's also not the same body. Our resurrection will be like the way an oak tree grows from an acorn. If I showed you an acorn this morning, you would not be able to see what it will be like. And I think there's a similarity in what Paul's saying about what our physical bodies will be like. Our bodies now are a bare kernel, he says. Well, it's not particularly flattering, but he perhaps, oh, he says, a grain of wheat or perhaps some other grain. Like <laughs> so let's look at what Paul says the plant that comes from this bare kernel will be like. So first, in verse 42, he says, what is sown, what is planted, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, which means we will be unable to die. 
We've talked quite a bit in this series about the brokenness of creation and the brokenness of our bodies. No physical brokenness comes close to the towering enemy of death itself. Death is at the root of all of our greatest fears. It's the great leveler of humanity. Pharaoh or pheasant, billionaire or dictator, it is the thing that no one survives. For something that happens to everyone, that is so much a part of our lives, doesn't death feel deeply unnatural? It's because it's not what we were made to bear. And so it never becomes normal and it never gets easier. I'm sure those of us who've experienced recent bereavement will attest to that. The defeat of death is the event in scripture that, had been, that we've been waiting for since like the second page of the Bible. Even those who were resurrected again in the Bible by Jesus, like Nazareth, they were resurrected with the same decaying bodies and would one day actually have to face death again, just like everyone else until Jesus. In Jesus, death has been swallowed up in victory. And now it is but our guide into the presence of Jesus. He will take us to be with him for a feast to begin all feasts in his garden city. Many of us have a very real fear of death. I'm sure that for all of us, fear of death is in some way a part of our lives, some a part of our thought processes, especially in those small hours of the night. Maybe it's something that you really try quite hard to avoid thinking about. Maybe it's something you try quite hard to prevent. But there is nothing to fear here, for Jesus has taken the sting of death upon himself. Um, just jumping ahead in this chapter to verse 53, look at this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If we don't know this truth, and if our world doesn't know this truth, we end up looking in all sorts of places to try and avoid death. And um, you hear about various how do you say it? Oh, I can't remember. Chirogenic chambers? I should have looked that up. <laughs> um, which I guess would be where the billionaires have their, their fun trying to extend human life. I read an article about 139 trials testing drugs that try and prevent aging. Some of which can reliably extend the lifespan by up to 30%. Billions and billions of pounds trying to prolong death in... Such a futile way, it seems. Things like alendronic acid and donezepil and all very modern technology. But this product and this project is actually thousands of years old. This human product, project of trying to prolong or prevent death. Tales of a fountain of youth have been told for thousands of years across vastly different societies around the world. And they all speak of this mythical water that will give health and life to anyone who enters it. The human quest to escape death is as old as death itself. 
And these stories of the fountain of youth point to a deep human longing that there must be something more than this. These stories point to the story, the true story, one that ends not with a fountain of youth, but a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God through the city. And on either side will be the tree of life, the leaves of which will be for the healing of the nations. This is not a place that death has been swallowed up by drug trials, expensive anti-aging creams, or avoiding the 116 things that give us cancer according to the Daily Mail. Had a read of the list, guys, and I'm really sorry to say, but one of the things we all need to stop doing is going outside. (laughs) There is only one place where death is swallowed up, and that is in the victory of Jesus. You will be raised in the one who is life himself, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. And we could stop there, couldn't we? (laughs) It's amazing that, that we will not die, that death will be but a memory, and all that comes with death will be but a memory, that there won't be any pain or suffering. When I think about eternity, there are, there are some things that I look forward to. I've, it's quite minor, but recently I've had some dietary faff, and there's all these foods that I'm now looking forward to eating again. I really can't see very well without dark, contact lenses or glasses. And if I go swimming, honestly, I swim into old people all the time. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to not doing that. And kind of more seriously, I have experienced really distressing, intrusive thoughts since I was about 15. And I'm so excited to have a peaceful mind without anxiety, without the low mood that that causes. Maybe it's the same for you. You can imagine this current body, but minus the things that wreak havoc with our bodies and minds. Maybe you imagine, okay, I'll be like me, but just minus these aches and pains or the ways my brain tries to kill me and all of these things. But I think this is almost where our brains like have to stop because we reach the edge of the limits of our imagination. Now, I think I have a pretty good imagination. Anyone who slept in the same room as me and has heard me sleep talk will be able to attest to this. <laughs> but this is what I can't imagine. My body will be sown in dishonor and raised in glory sown in weakness and raised in power. We can maybe imagine a life free from aches and pains, but how do we conceive of ourselves as glorious? Here, Paul isn't just talking about the absence of suffering and sin in our bodies, but also the presence of that, which is beyond our abilities to comprehend, sharing in the glory of God himself. Have you ever dwelt on this? You will be glorious. And maybe that even sounds a bit like, oh, Sounds a bit blasphemous. That's what it says. We will share. We will be like him. C.S. Lewis says, if you could see what the person sitting next to you will look like in their resurrected body, you'd be strongly tempted to worship them. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I'm sure swimming with sharks in the ocean in the new creation will be amazing. And maybe I'll even have the requisite courage then to join my sister. (laughs) 
I can't wait to go to sleep without overthinking, to walk around at night in safety. I can't wait to eat an almond croissant. But here is the true miracle of the redemption of our bodies. This is 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is.